So let's open in prayer. Father, again, we thank You for Your grace. We thank You again that You have touched our lives. You've opened up our hearts. Lord, You have given us understanding and illumination. And Lord, that's what we long for today, that You would instruct us through Your Holy Spirit, Your truth, that we would see You and know You, and Lord, that we would walk in Your will. So Lord, our desire is really to to glorify You, to magnify You. And all of God's people said, Amen. Colossians chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 10, but we're going to be really looking at 11 through about 15. In verse 10 it says, In Him you have been made complete, and He is the head over all rule and authority, and in Him you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God, who's raised Him up from the dead. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of the debt consisting against us, which was hostile to us. And He has taken taken out of the way and having nailed it to the cross. And when He had disarmed the rulers and authorities, He made public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him. Now I titled the message, Complete in Christ. And you, when you had been born again, you are complete in Christ. That means you have everything within you for life and godliness. That means that Jesus Christ lives in you. The problem is, you did notice there's a problem, right? We're still in unredeemed flesh. So there's this battle, this struggle that we'll talk about that goes on back and forth. But yet, because Christ indwells our heart, the Spirit of God, that same working that raised Him from the dead, that same power indwells your life, and it's that same power that will change you, transform you into that image and likeness of Jesus Christ. And there's only one thing you need to do. Believe and trust in the Lord and lean not on your own understanding. He begins the work and He finishes the work. See, we have... Complete salvation in Christ. It doesn't mean you have to earn it. It doesn't mean you have to keep being good. Though if you are truly been born again, you will continue to walk it out in Him. You will still fall short in many ways. But you will become more and more like Him each day. You cannot continue in, in the sinful past and the things that you did habitually. You may struggle, you may be fall, you may sin, but He is faithful and just to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. You have become His workmanship. In fact, last week when we talked, we saw that the Colossian heresy was a mixture of pagan philosophy and Jewish legalism. In fact, really the title of that message, if you remember, was Philosophy or Christ. Philosophy or Christ. I'm not going to go into that, but I want to remind you, almost every church has its own philosophy. They have their church doctrine. And that's important to understand. The Catholic Church has it. The Baptist Church has it. These are the things that make them different from everyone else. Now what's important is, does our philosophy come from the Word of God? That is our balance. That is how we know that we're walking in the Lord. We're looking for that to to adjust our life to. But we saw the Pharisees and Sadducees, they, again, they were philosophers of the age, and they had taken traditions and put it above the Word of God. And that's what sometimes people can do. They put their traditions above the Word of God. They actually say, well, God really didn't mean that. They make themselves the authority. For a Christian, a true person who's born again, will put themselves under the Word of God. 
I love that. If I'm counseling somebody and they have struggles and they have sin in their life and there's not one person, I'm going to give you a clue, there's not a person here that doesn't sin. But if I would sit down and open the Scripture with you, that person is going to recognize that they've sinned and sinned against the Holy God and they want to put that off. They're going to confess that. They're going to repent of that. And you know what? Their life falls back in the right path. And that's important. Those that choose another path, they have their own philosophy about who God is. But the person who puts themselves under the authority of the Word sees God as He is. He's a holy God. He's a righteous God. He's a just God. And that's what we're going to see. It's not about rules. It's not about regulations. It's about a life hidden in Christ. Now, it's not surprising that these false teachers in Colossae, when you think about it, were were here in in Colossae, much like those, again, in the book of Galatians, because they were teaching circumcision was necessary for salvation. It wasn't enough to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You needed to be circumcised and, and, and set apart for God. In fact, we'll talk more about that in a second, but Paul makes his connection here in this text differently than other places. He makes his connection between circumcision and baptism, especially the Reformed theologians. And they make this connection, and even having a baby be circumcised and baptized, and you have a baby that's baptized, and that's supposed to initiate them into the body of Christ. But that's not necessarily what the Bible is teaching, and that's what we're going to see today. Paul's analogy, again, between the two, neglects the very example when you go to the book of Acts, again, what baptism was all about. Baptism, again, if you remember on that day of Pentecost, the birth of the church, where Jesus would have walked in the temple time and time again. If you would go there today, you would see a series of mikvahs. They're like small pools. They're ritual pools that they would go and they would wash and ritually cleanse themselves. They knew they needed to be cleansed. And all over Jerusalem, around the temple especially, there were these mikvahs. Even in some of the rich homes, they had these mikvahs. And it's not just the outside, it's the heart. They knew that need. And it's important to understand that God had a plan for them. That baptism only becomes identification. Identifying with that death and the resurrection of Christ. And you have to die. You have to die to your sin and raised in that newness. We, we identify with his death and we're raised with him. We're a new creature in Christ. Old things pass away, all are new. But, but, we're still living in unredeemed flesh. And the battle and the struggle is every day. Sometimes even in our sleep. You ever wake up and have a dream that, oh wow, Lord, why did I have that dream? Forgive me. I don't think I'm the only one. The enemy is very good at pouring things into your head. It just depends on what you do with it. Do you continue to think on it? Or do you confess it and say, Lord, take it away from me. Give me dreams that are sweet. Now, circumcision is what they're putting this emphasis on. And a a, a young baby at eight days old would be circumcised. It was the perfect day that they learned later when the the blood was clotting that they would do this circumcision. It was a a cutting off of the flesh, but it was done on the eighth day. The eighth day is very significant because eight is a a, a symbol for a, a new beginning. In fact, Jesus was not raised upon the eighth day, but the first day, it was seven days leading in the eighth day. It's a new beginning. There is always a new beginning after a death. A death, a new life. It was a sign, circumcision, a sign that really Israel belonged to God. And we can have signs all day and yet still not be a believer. Now throughout Israel's history, there's two schools of of thought when you stop and think about it, about circumcision that is. And the first one was that circumcision alone was enough to save a person. See, they believed if, if they circumcised their boy, their boy was saved. 
that immediately was placed into that, that covenant relationship with God. But in reality, it's only a, an outward symbol. And it's important to understand, yes, it, it was a, a sign of a covenant between God and them. But again, what's really important is the circumcision of the heart we're going to see. Because the cutting of the flesh on the outside doesn't change the heart of a person. Notice again in Romans 9, verse 6. But it's not enough as though, excuse me, but it's not as though the word of Lord has failed, but they're not all Israel who have descended from Israel. See, that was their, their trust, the, the fact that they, they were circumcised, that they're Israel, that they were descendants of Israel. They're, they're not, is what he's going to say. In fact, look at Romans 2, verse 25 and 28. For indeed, circumcision is value if you practice that law, but if you're a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Verse 28, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is an outward in the flesh. He's going to build the principle, it's the heart that needs to be circumcised. When a person's born again, something supernatural happens. That is, God cuts the flesh away in our heart, making it sensitive to Him. The things that you used to do, you don't want to do anymore. You're convicted of your sin. You don't want to hang with the same friends. Go the same places. You want to do new things. You want to, you want to go to church. You want to be in the Word. You want to be around others. There's a change. It's an evidence in, in the heart of a person. Now there's a second view that recognized circumcision was, was only an outward demonstration that a man was born sinful and needed a cleansing. See, the cutting away of the male foreskin demonstrated the depth of the sin of mankind. Not just man, but mankind. Stop and think about that for a second. In Genesis 1, when God created a spiritual law, there's physical laws and spiritual laws, and, and things were produced. Humans were produced after humans, and horses after horses, and plants produced plants, and so on. But the principle is true in a spiritual realm, too. And that is, the flesh always produces flesh. The spirit produces spirit. Why, it was a sign, an outward sign, that these people were to be set apart. It was a continual reminder of their sinful nature. A need of a cleansing. A need of being set apart from God when a, a woman would get married. When a, a scene wanted to read the Word of God or study and copy it, one of the things that they would do is they would go into a, a mikvah, and you've maybe heard me described this before. They would go in the mikvah, they would strip down naked. And in your prayer would be, Lord, I want to be clean like I was in the mother's womb. Every person recognized. They recognize when they come to the Word of God, how could they touch it because they're sinful? Their desires. to want to change it. You know, sometimes when you read the Word of God, is there, are there passages that you come to you just don't like? Does anyone struggle with that? There are some that I share with. I just don't understand. Because I have this unredeemed mind completely. I need that cleansing, that daily cleansing, that washing of the water of the Word. See, it was something that was ingrained in that culture that they knew it. So the biblical view is that, that really from the beginning, circumcision was really only meant to be symbolical. To illustrate, again, the, the desperate need of man had for the cleansing of his heart. The good news. Stop and think about it. There's no good news if a man doesn't know he's a sinner and he's desperate for God. That he cannot be good enough on his own. Only when he recognizes his sinfulness, then can that good news be received. So God had to show man he was sinful. We're very good at justifying our sin, justifying and being angry at anyone. I'm going to ask you a question, don't hold your hands. 
But is there anyone in your life that you're mad at today? Anyone that you've been mad at for a long time that you have not forgiven? There is sin in your heart and God wants to cleanse you. Every one of us have these struggles. Deuteronomy 10.16 says this, So circumcise your heart, stiffen your neck no longer. It's interesting, it says, circumcise, how can I circumcise my heart? What we need is a supernatural circumcision, but it means that I need to be set apart, I need to quit hardening my heart, quit stiff, being stiff-necked, I need to be recognize my sin, I need to submit myself to God and say, God, you need to change my, soften my heart, create in me a clean heart, O God. Do not take thy Holy Spirit away from me. The psalmist would cry, he knew that song. But Israel stiffened their neck against God. They did what was right in their own eyes, and I'm sure every one of us here have done that at some point, done what's right in our own eyes. That's like the book of Judges. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. God shows you before you sin. There's always conviction, but, you know, we can justify it, and we keep on walking into sin. We're no better than the people in the book of Judges. Until we confess, and we repent, and we turn back to God. That's a message that people don't want to hear. They don't want to hear they're, they're sinners. They still have sinful flesh. But God sees a believer without any sin. Notice again in Deuteronomy, he's speaking, remember, to Israel, but there's a spiritual application for you and me. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, Moreover, the Lord, your God, will circumcise your heart, the heart of your descendants, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, so that you may live. You know that, that first and greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and soul? I haven't mastered that yet. Has anyone else here mastered that? It, 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 because we have this sinful flesh, we need Him, and there needs to be this continual cry out in prayer, God, give me a heart after You. Give me a hatred for those things that You hate. I need God to continually circumcise my heart. It is a supernatural work of God that God changes our hearts. And notice he does it in the hearts of the descendants. Why? That we would love the Lord God. We would learn to love Him. We would see Him in all of His mercy, and all of His grace. There's glimpses that you and I get from time to time. Perhaps you remember the man that stood far off and he was beating his chest, and he says, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. I think every one of us probably need to do that at some point. When we do the same sin and again and again and again. A man can often forget that God is, was always concerned with really the heart, and, and sometimes we, we try to master and control the outside, but really the outside is a reflection of what's happening inside. We're trying to keep the, the, the physical right. But what God wants us to do is to obey Him, not disobey Him. See, if we disobey, it really reveals that heart, a heart that needs to be circumcised or a heart that needs to be surrendered. In Genesis 15.6 says this, then he, referring to Abraham, believed the Lord. Now that Lord, capital, all caps, is that covenant God. He, he's the covenant God. Abraham's in this relationship with him. There's a covenant between them. And he says, and he reckoned to him as righteousness. See, it was then when he believed God. Believing God means that I'm going to, to follow him. I'm going to trust in him and lean not on my own understanding. I'm going to acknowledge him in all of his ways. I'm going to walk in his ways. And when I fall short, that I'm going to confess those sins. And I'm going to turn back to him. Notice Romans chapter 4, verse 11 says, And he received the sign. Notice it's a sign of circumcision. A seal of righteousness of faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised. See, he is the father of faith. That you're a descendant of Him by faith, by just believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and trusting whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised. Now the Jewish people 
prided themselves on circumcision. They, they saw themselves as God's people. But there were people who were not circumcised. They called them the uncircumcised, unclean to them. But they could be right. They could keep the law in their own heart because God had instilled it in them. Stephen recognized this because, again, when he was being stoned, if you stop and think of it, he, he accused the Sanhedrin, again, men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. They were circumcised, but he recognized they were disobedient to God. They were going to do what was right in their own eyes and their own hearts. Romans chapter 2, verse 29. But he is a Jew... But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from men, but from God. You know what really matters? is not what everyone else thinks here about you, but God. Stop and think, how many people did you know, one moment they love you, you're, you're, you're the you're the best guy, the best gal. <laughs> Next day, boy, they really tear you apart. People are so fickle, and yet we're trying to worry and please those around us. There's only one that really matters. Jesus Christ. Giving our hearts to Him. Philippians 3.3 says this, For we are the true circumcision, speaking to believers, speaking to those in Philippi who worship in the Spirit of God. Now, first of all, that means that when you're singing, you're not singing just a song, you're singing to God. It is your prayer unto God. Those words are assimilated into your heart. You're wanting to connect with God. Even when the, sometimes they have instrumentals in it, or they'll be singing a little bit. What a beautiful time to pray, God. I want this to be true in my heart. It's our spirit that connects. When we are circumcised, our heart, and we have been born again, this is important to understand, it's our spirit that connects with God. And it says, who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The Jewish people had confidence in the flesh. They had confidence in their circumcision. There's a question that rises. Why do Christians still sin? I've already answered this as we've gone on. It's because we're in unredeemed flesh. You still have desires. Romans, Paul's teaching in Romans chapter 7, he says, why do I do the things that I, I don't want to do? And then in verse 23, he says this, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging a war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. There's a struggle in every one of our hearts. No one rises above it until the Lord brings us home. The struggle that you may experience may be different than me, and the one for your wife and the husband is going to be different. But you know what? It's just as real the struggle. A person who has a circumcised heart, a person who has been born again, he desires to do good. He desires to obey God. But there's a struggle of the flesh. It's humanness. In fact, the reason we struggle is really in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. Many of you know it. Notice with me for... For all that is in the world, notice it says the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. These are the three areas. Every sin can be traced back to one of these areas. These are the same areas in the Garden of Eden that Adam and Eve were dealt with. It's the same struggle that Jesus was tested. The temptation of Christ in Luke 4 and Matthew 4. Three areas that, 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 again, that Satan will want to tempt you. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. I think, in my own opinion, the, the worst one probably is the pride of life. Because we all struggle with pride in some way. We focus upon ourselves. 
When baptism is viewed as a rite necessary for salvation, he's really pointing out it's, it's, it's pointless. Pointless is circumcision. See, there's many, as I mentioned, that, that believe that a, a, a baby has to be circumcised and then it's baptized and it's saved. Some will even go as far as to say that, that if your baby was born and that baby died, and if it wasn't the elect, well, that baby goes to hell. If that baby was the elect, it goes to heaven. That's the extreme of that, that teaching. And baptism is that you baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's an identification. A, a person has to want to be baptized. I baptize young kids, and, and one of the things people said, why do you baptize a young kid? If a kid comes to me and says, well, why do you want to be baptized? I ask them, they say, because Jesus said so. How can you say no? Because we want them to always obey Jesus Christ. And if they have that willingness and they want to follow, don't quench the spirit of those kids. Explain to them what it's about. You cannot trust in this. But it is so beautiful when a kid wants to obey. Fan that flame in them. Encourage them, whether it be your kids or your grandkids, even a friend. Encourage them. But the trust in baptism itself, it will not save you. And so many just want their babies baptized if something happens. I'm going to tell you, if God takes a child home before that point of accountability, that child will be in heaven. God will bring them to be with Him. A hard thing to say, but I think it's an encouraging thing to say. There have been many women through the years that have done abortions, that have become believers. And when they get to heaven, they will see that child, that aborted child, face to face. There's no anger. There's no grief. They'll see that child everything that God ever wanted them to be. We have a God of mercy and a God of grace. A God of hope. There are many denominations have done and taught, unless you're baptized in our church, you're not going to heaven. If you are baptized in a Baptist church, well, that's not good enough. You're going to go to hell. That's never what the Bible teaches. And see, they're trusting in a baptism instead of a circumcision of the heart. Paul never made a great emphasis upon baptism. Well, he taught it, but it wasn't the main focus. Notice with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 13 through 17, has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus or Gaius, so that no one would say that you were baptized in my name. Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I, I did not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not a cleverness of speech, he says. So the cross of Christ would not be made void. See, it's not about baptism. It's about believing and trusting in Jesus Christ. It's what Jesus Christ has done for you. The gospel is simple. It's Christ-focused. It's not adding to it. Now, in a spiritual sense, notice 1 Corinthians with me, 12, 13. For by one Spirit you have been all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, whether slaves or free, or, or and, we're all made into drink of one spirit. See, we're all one in Christ. There's no difference. We're baptized into Christ and Christ alone, not, not into a church, not into a denomination, but in Him. Notice we're all baptized one spirit. It's the spirit that baptized. Some will teach us is the baptism of the spirit. It's a secondary experience, and I'm not going to go off on it today. But there's one baptism. It's not talking about a physical outward action, but it's talking about you, when you're born again, you're placed in the body of Christ. It is a supernatural work of God, and your hands aren't on it. What it is is a heart surrendered to God. See, baptism pictures a believer's union with Christ. And they have been buried, again, as I mentioned, 
in baptism, and it's a spiritual union. So when we go down and raised up, we, we, we're identifying with his death and his resurrection, and we get that from Romans 6. Look at verses 3 and 4. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? That's identification. Therefore, we have been buried with him through the baptism into death, so as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in that newness of life. Now stop and think for a second. From the day of Pentecost, 3,000 souls were baptized. Now there's a lot of mikvahs all over. That's a place to, to again for ritual washing. But they were again, being baptized all over the city. Every place they could, every place they could find water, they were wanting to identify. What a huge statement. These people now are identifying with Jesus as their Messiah against what most of Jerusalem rejected. With his death and his resurrection. And what would do as a result in them? Many of them would lose their business. Many of them would be set apart. They were making a statement, I identify with Christ. My life is in Christ, no matter what the world says. And when we go maybe to the park or baptize or any other church goes, it is a statement to the world. When I was in Israel one time and we were down at the Jordan River, there was a group baptizing down there at that point. And, and someone come up and they asked the question, why are you doing this? They'd been in a church and had never been baptized. And it was an opportunity to share what God had done, the gospel message. And before that conversation was over, that person went down, received Jesus Christ as Savior, and they wanted to identify with Jesus Christ. I do not believe in this case it was an emotional experience. It was a real, honest conversion. It was a spiritual transformation. It was what the Scripture says again, through faith, the working of God. The Holy Spirit was working in that person's heart. It was what we call a divine appointment. They saw it right at that time, and they had that desire, I want to understand what is happening. And that word working that's in our text there is speaking about that, that word energy. It's where we get our word energy from. In that energy, that active power, is God working, working through His Word but he is the one who is the one that circumcises our heart. It's the same one that raised Jesus from the dead. It's interesting when we think in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 10, it says, if you confess with your heart, it's important to understand, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I don't think that's on the screen. No, I didn't put it on the screen. But think about that again. It's when you believe, when you say, when you confess Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart, a person is saved. You know, the moment the person confesses Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart, they're saved instantaneously, faster than I can snap my fingers. That is a supernatural work of God. The heart is circumcised, it's changed, is transformed. That's the work of God. In fact, in Genesis 15, 6, again, that idea we talked about earlier, it says, speaking about Abraham, when he believed again in the Lord, it was accredited to him or reckoned to him as righteousness. The moment the person believes, even before it comes out of his mouth, God reckons it righteousness, a counting term. You're right. Before he was even circumcised, he was saved where the person's even baptized. It's a rite that we do. Certainly it's an ordinance. It's something that we want to do and a believer wants to identify with Christ. But the baptism doesn't save them. So we're complete in Christ. The moment that a person believes in Christ Jesus, you are complete. By the way, it's not part of our text, just a thought. You have every spiritual gift that God has ever planned for you. You have a table spread before you. All you need to do is go and appropriate by faith what God has given you. When a person recognizes that they need a, a word of knowledge, God gives them that word of knowledge. If that's a gift that He's given to them. You need faith? Lord, increase my faith. Come to the table. Believe in Him that He will increase your faith. 
He will strengthen you. He will guide you. So we're complete in him. So the salvation is complete in Christ alone. Not based upon our works, but in Christ, what he has done for you and me. And it's something that you can encourage others. Knowing that their faith will rest in God. Never get them to trust in the church. Never get them to trust in their baptism. But trust in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. We also have complete forgiveness. Anyone need forgiveness here today? Thou shalt not lie. Every one of us need forgiveness. We need that washing and cleansing each day. You're spotted as you go through this life. Let's read in verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us of all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He has also taken it out of the way and nailed it to the cross. In verses 11 and 12, Paul emphasized salvation is complete apart from any ritual, right, apart from any human effort. Forgiveness, in this case, is perhaps the most exciting because every one of us here need forgiveness. Every one of us here, every person in this world will stand before Holy God, one day in judgment. You'll stand at one or the other judgment. You'll either stand at that beam of seat and be rewarded for your faithfulness in the, in the gifts, the abilities that God has given you, or you'll stand before that white throne judgment, which you will be judged for rejecting Jesus Christ and the horror of your sin. Finney, years ago, I don't have the exact quote here, he made a statement about the body of Christ in general. He says the majority of the people that attend church have never, ever been born again. This is over 150 years ago. He made that statement. Generation after generation, people have sat in church and trusted in their works and their efforts, and they've never known the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Forgiveness is free that cost the Father His Son and cost the Son dearly that you could have forgiveness in His Son. The Colossians were like all the sinful mankind. They were dead in their transgressions at one point before salvation. Being spiritually dead means really, again, being devoid of any sense, any feeling, any way. As I've described, the, the worst sin in my life was the first time after I was born again, recognizing that I'd sinned against a holy God. Because before I was born again, sin was the natural thing to do. It wasn't wrong. And that's what happened is that you're blinded by that sin. We were spiritually dead. Devoid, again, is, is those things. And that's what sin does. It, it blinds us. and It enables us. Um, it unables us to respond to God. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 2.14, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. How many times have you shared the gospel with somebody, talked about something spiritual, and they kind of laugh and mock at you? Well, let me tell you, they're not mocking and laughing at you. They're really laughing at God. They can't understand Him. I like a passage in Judges. Judges chapter 16, verse 21. Follow with me. It's referring about Samson and Samson, the, the consequences of his sin. And It says, Then the Philistines seized him, referring to Samson. They gouged out his eyes. They brought him down to Gaza and they bound him with bronze chains. And he was a grinder in prison. Three things I see about sin here. It will blind you. It will gouge out your eyes. You know, a person who is addicted to whether it be pornography or any sin, they, they just lose all sense of sight. All they do is they have this tunnel vision. And they keep going. They can't help themselves. They can't climb out of the, the pit without the help. Sin will gouge out your eyes. It will leave you blinded. 
And second, it bound him with bronze chains. And whenever you find bronze or brass in the scripture, it's always a symbol of judgment. The idea that he's in chains, he's bound. He no longer has the freedom. The freedom in God. He's, he's this man that was strength. He, he was a judge. He was to go against the Philistines. He can't judge them. And you know a person who is blinded by sin, who is put in chains because of his choices, his life is grinding away day in and day out. And they're like being led to a slaughter. But God, Ephesians 2, 4, and 6 says this, but God being rich in mercy because of His great love, which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace we've been saved and raised us up with Him and seated with Him in the heavenly places of Christ Jesus. That's our position. Your home is in heaven. You're going to be with the King one day for eternity. You are just like Samson. But God, rich in His mercy, reached out, snatched you out of that mire. He wooed you, and all you did is look up and respond and say, I want to believe. And He opened up your heart. Psalm 32, 1. It's David's cry after Bathsheba, if you remember. After the sin, after the loss of a child. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. There's no greater feeling than knowing that when you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to cleanse you all in righteousness. I love the water. You know, from young, I used to surf and everything. Just getting the water is such a, a cleansing feeling. Refreshing feeling. But there's no more refreshing feeling than knowing that we're washed as white as snow. You've sinned and you feel dirty. And yet you can stand before a holy God. You can boldly go to that throne of grace and receive mercy in a time of need. In fact, Isaiah 1, 18 and 55, 7 reminds us really of the heart of God. See, this is what the world doesn't know. You didn't know when you were blinded, but now you look back and notice verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they may be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they will be like wool. And let the wicked forsake their way in unforgiveness. The man is his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion upon him to our God, for He will abundantly pardon him. Maybe you need pardon today. Maybe you need forgiveness of sin. Maybe there's some unforgiveness you have and cry out to God. You can cry out right where you're at. Close your eyes now and say, God, forgive me. Cleanse me and wash me. Give me a new heart. And before you even say that, you're cleansed and washed as white as snow. That's God. He finds no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. He, he's wanting us to reason with them. That we can be washed as white as snow and know that forgiveness and see what a, what a wonderful characteristic when you stop and think of God's forgiveness is for all that call upon His name. He can be washed as white as snow. First, it's His graciousness when you stop and think about it. Let me read Titus 3, verses 4 and 7. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of the deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Spirit, which He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You notice that that's God working? God's wanting to work in each one of our lives today. Well, the second thing I want to call your attention to about God's forgiveness is complete. Look at Ephesians 1.7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And notice it's according to the riches of His grace. In 1 John 2.12, notice what it says. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for His name's sake. Elsewhere it's written... 
and say, this is written that you might know that you have eternal life and that eternal life is in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's forgiven you and given you life, life eternal in His Son. Third, forgiveness is eager. Psalm 86, 5. Notice what it says. For you, Lord, are, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon your name. Have you ever kind of blown it? I, I know you're blowing it. But stop and think you were really going to do something, but you didn't do something because it, it was just so intimidating, so fearful, and you just it got worse and worse and worse and balled up. But finally, when you dealt with it, it wasn't so bad. God's just wanting you to come to Him. He's wanting to forgive you. He's wanting to remove everything between you and Him that you'd have that intimate relationship with Him. Because He loves you with that everlasting Love. Ezekiel 18.23 says, Do I have pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live? Please don't ever say, well, that person is beyond the grace of God. No one is beyond the grace of God in this life. In fact, the one that is probably yelling and the loudest out there is the one that best candidate for God's grace. Fourthly, God's forgiveness is unequaled. Micah 7.18 says this, who is, who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious acts of a remnant of his own possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in an unchanging love. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He delights in you. He delights in forgiveness. Paul illustrates this again by taking... Again, the certificate, this debt, it's nailed to the cross. It's wiped away. He died for you and me upon the cross. That you could boldly stand before Him. That you could walk with Him in intimacy. The decrees that's referring that are against us is, is really the Mosaic Law. The Ten Commandments. Ephesians 2.15 says this, by abolishing his flesh, the enemy, which is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two one new man, establishing peace. The very idea of canceled out means to, to wipe out, erasing off the blackboard. There is nothing held against you. Please don't go to the Lord. Lord, forgive me again. What I did when I was 18 years old, he's just going to say, what? What? What are you talking about? Because he chooses not to remember those things when you confessed. And finally, we, we have complete victory in Christ. Anyone victorious here today? That's kind of a cue. Yes! We're victorious in Christ. Every one of us. Because in Christ, we are victorious. Look at verse 15. When he had disarmed the rulers, the authorities, he made public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Having disarmed Satan, and, and again, stripping away is that idea, stripping away his power. And when he speaks about the rulers, authorities, that's the fallen angels. He made public display of them. It's kind of the, the analogy comes again from a, a Roman leader going through a city after he's conquered again the enemy. He would go through with his army and then behind would be all the ones conquered from war in chains and their heads down, shamefully going through the city, displaying everything that everyone can see. One day, you will see Satan. And you look at him, and I don't know what he's going to look like, but he's going to be puny. And, it, and the Scripture picks it, it kind of this way, and this is my own paraphrase of it. This little guy? This is the one that made all the problems? This is the one that tempted me and caused me to stumble? Caused nations to turn against nations? You are victorious in Christ. Do not let the enemy have a foothold in your life. 2 Corinthians 2.14 again, but thanks be to God who always leads us in this triumphant in Christ and manifests through the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. Just as the Roman soldier would lead the slaves through, 
We are triumphed with Christ. Satan is in chains. Hebrews 2.14 says this, Therefore, since the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook in the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power over death, that is, the devil. One day, we all will say, Death, where is your sting? Because the victory is in Christ. Look at Romans 8, 37 and 39. But in all these things, we are overwhelmingly conquerors through Him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels or principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing will separate the believer from Christ Jesus. There will never be a moment that you're ever fearful that He's not there. He is your shield. He is your strong tower. He is everything that you ever, ever needed. But what does God say today? I think in Acts 3.19, I finish with this verse. Notice what it says, Therefore, repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. What does the Lord say? Repent and return. Maybe you're walking with the Lord today, but maybe you have a, a brother, a sister, a family member, a friend that's not walking with the Lord. Pray that God would grant them the grace of repentance. That they would return. Return back to the Lord. That there would be a time of refreshing. Not isolated, but, but not forsaking the fellowship of the saints. Because being together in Him in the middle of His will is the best place to be.